Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask if the Red Bull RB14 has what it takes to win the World Championship and take a look at the new cars from Renault and Sauber. Half of the Formula One field has now been revealed, and the latest cars to break cover have been Red Bull, Renault and Sauber. So we're going to have a good look in depth at all three of those teams and what we can expect from them this season. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to run the rule over these three new cars, first is Glenn Freeman. Now, as Autosport.com editor, launch season is is manna from heaven, isn't it, in terms of reader interest and lots of stories to talk about. So you must be a, a pig in the proverbial right now. I don't think I've ever been called that before, Ed, so thank you for that. Uh, yes, it's brilliant for us. There's so much interest at this time of year. It was always everyone's favourite time of year, I think, when you are a fan as well. And, it's, and we're still fans at heart, so we love it as well, seeing new cars for the first time. Um, it's a bit tiring at this time of year, but it's worth it. And we've also got Scott Mitchell, who's uh, lost his way from the, the Formula E podcast to get onto this Formula One podcast. Are you disorientated and baffled by these very loud engines compared to Formula E. Well, the bit that confused me was you asking me to come in and do a, a launch podcast, which I thought was really odd four races into my season. And then I realised you were talking about Formula 1, not Formula E. So I sort of gathered my bearings a bit now. I did wonder if you thought I was talking about a Tesla. 
<laughs> they get launched a lot now. It's very it's very weird because obviously in in in, in FE the the cars don't really get launched because they're all the same. So I'm looking at these new ones and I'm thinking, oh, these, these all these all look a bit different rather than not. It's not just the sound. It's a whole new world for Scott Mitchell to get his teeth into. So without further ado, let's really get into it. Red Bull is the the biggest of the of the three teams to to have launched. So Glenn, do you think this is the championship challenger everyone wants to see a good fight at the front is hoping for? I think it has to be. You know, Red Bull have had uh, a few a few quiet years by their own standards now, and they've become a bit of a traditional slow starter, which for a team as good as Red Bull is completely unacceptable. Too many times we get to testing or we get to the early races and they're just so much more off the pace than we would expect. And then by the end of the season, Christian Horner's patting everyone on the back saying, look what a great job we did. We outdeveloped everybody. We won races by the end of the year. And you think, yeah, but the ultimate prize was gone by sort of June, July time. And we can't have that anymore. So Red Bull, we've got stable regulations now. They did show great improvement across the course of 2017. So we've just got to hope that they've been able to take that next step. And I think Red Bull will probably be hoping that Ferrari and Mercedes don't have anything too spectacular up their sleeves as well. I know Helmut Marko hinted at that over the weekend, that if there's some huge Mercedes engine leap or something like that, then all the gains Red Bull have made could be nullified pretty quickly. That's the worry for Red Bull, isn't it, Scott? With the big noisy bit behind the driver, the one bit we can't see in the car so far is the big unknown. Exactly, especially because the way the 2017 season ended, everyone talked about Red Bull arguably having the best chassis on the grid, but that that's useless if the if the the engine's not up to it and it's all well and good red bull saying that they've got this amazing car but if it's only going to be able to perform at two or three grand prix over the course of the season because the engine deficit's nullified or whatever then it's not good enough for a championship challenge it's been so long since we saw this team that dominated f1 for for four years with sebastian vettel sustain a, a challenge over the course of a season we've not seen it in this new era and you have to say that's obviously fundamentally down to the fact that the turbo uh, the turbocharged hybrid engine from, from Renault has just not been up to task. What was interesting was we had a little spell after the summer break last year where suddenly Renault, with the exception of qualifying, Renault appeared to get it together. They were on the pace in race trim and it was all looking pretty good. And suddenly you thought, here we go, they're finally on the level that they need to be. But then with that came a load more reliability problems. And I think Renault were just pushing a little bit too hard. They were a little bit too close to the edge. So when they dialed it back for the final few races, I think Mexico was a disaster, aside from the fact that a Red Bull-powered car actually won that race. There were so many failures. They dialed it back, and suddenly Red Bull drifted off the back of Ferrari and Mercedes again. Renault, as we'll come to in a bit, I'm sure, a huge focus for them is reliability this year, and they've got to be able to combine that with a leap in performance. And if they do, then yeah, Red Bull should be in the mix. One of the worries that you have to sort of look at is that 12 months ago, obviously preparing for the 2017 season, Renault went quite aggressive on their concept, the engine concept from 2016 to 17, and they got a few things wrong. So they had to revert to to an old spec. I think it was at the end of the ERS that they had to basically go back to for the first few races because it basically wasn't up to standard. Um, and then obviously you're on, you're on the on the back foot. So the the big question mark over Renault isn't so much that they can get themselves into a a reasonable trim. It's whether they can make that that next step. And the evidence we've seen so far suggests that they just fall a little bit short when it comes to that hurdle. Yeah, it was the MG UK they went back to the old one for last year. And in fact, the the whole Urs thing is the big concern for them. We don't really know exactly where Renault's going to be at, but I'm hearing some slightly concerning mutterings from uh, from the other side of the channel about where exactly they are with the earth side of things and the reliability and it's this usual thing there there's 
there's performance in this Renault engine. There always has been, but they've really struggled to unlock it because what's the point in having performance if the only way you can access that performance is by destroying various engine components or overheating or whatever? So that's the huge challenge. If I was Red Bull, I'd be very worried. Well, supposedly one of the things that attracted McLaren to Renault, other than the fact they had no other options, was that there is a belief within Renault, I think now, that the direction they've gone gone in with their engine does potentially open up a lot more power and performance, but they have to be able to couple that with reliability and with consistency. And you have to have all of the parts of one of these complex power units sort of working in harmony. And I think, yeah, as you say, Ed, they've struggled to do that so far since these engines came in. The big thing to remember about the Red Bull chassis, which is the bit that Milton Keynes is in, in control of, is that last year's slow start was put down to wind tunnel calibration issues. Basically, the models were wider for 2017 in the wind tunnel, and I think I heard something about it. Something to do with the gap between the side of the car and the edges of the tunnel was producing really strange, what turned out to be really strange results. So if that's Red Bull's excuse for last year's slow start, that's fair enough. And that means that there really are no excuses this time. And I, I hope they're not able to sit there and point at the engine, as so many teams seem to like to do if they don't have uh, a German uh, engine in the back of their car. I hope we can just have Red Bull front up and either they've done a good job or they haven't done a good enough job and we're not um, sat around pointing fingers at engine suppliers. The timing of the Red Bull launch shows that they've obviously hit that target in terms of bringing forward the, the, the build process and, and having everything ready. But they've uh, they've inadvertently ended up with... Um, in, in a worse place than they would have been 12 months ago because they've already crashed the car before pre-season testing because Daniel Ricciardo had an off during the shakedown run at Silverstone. They say crashed it a week ahead of testing. You know, there are teams that shake down quite often on the Saturday or the Sunday before the test that happens on a Monday and they certainly wouldn't have some time to recover probably in the same way Red Bull did. Yeah, and it sounds like they're okay actually in, in terms of the uh, having all the parts they need for the test. I just find it amusing that you get to that that point they where finally you're, you're, launched yeah. on early and they shunt it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's better than what happened at Hareth in 2015. You remember most of the day, Danny Kvyat was driving around without a front wing on the car because they damaged the main one, Yeah, the and, only and, one they had. Yeah, and to quickly reference the McLaren Amazon documentary that's just come out, one of the things they were talking about when they thought they were doing a shakedown before all the delays came in in pre-season 2017 and the car wasn't ready, they only had one floor that was ready at the last minute and there's actually a meeting that's filmed in that documentary where they say, we can't curb this floor during the shakedown because then we won't have a floor for the start of testing in Barcelona. So that's how marginal F1 teams are here. And I think Red Bull are probably counting their lucky stars that for once they've they've gone early and it appears that might actually get them out of trouble in this case. The other victory that Red Bull's obviously scored um, is is in the sort of aesthetic stakes. I know it's obviously only a special launch livery, but they, they turned a few heads with that, that camouflage design and that's always quite a... I like. I always like the the, the cliche that you know if it, if it if it looks fast, it is fast. Unfortunately, I f- fear that we're not going to see this really cool car hit the track any more than just the shakedown. Yeah, it's such a shame. Red Bull. This is the second time they put a cool livery on it for when the car's revealed, and then I'm sure by the time it's running, whether it's in testing or at the races, it's going to look like every other Red Bull, isn't it? Just to pick you up on the thing about if it looks fast and all those usual typical comments we hear at this time of year. I was reminded the other day that Nigel Mansell said something like that at the launch of the 1995 McLaren. And what he said was, uh, if it goes as fast as it looks, uh, was the quote. And frankly, I think it did go as fast as it looks. <laughs> <didn't laughs> if, if it goes as fast as it looks, it'll be pointy and not very good. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty much how it turned out to be. But it's interesting, actually. We 
after each car launch, Gary Anderson, our technical expert, does his in-depth analysis of the car, which is up within a few hours, often even even less of the, the car being revealed. Now, he was interesting on the Red Bull last year because when it came out at, uh, for testing, he said that he was surprised that it lacked a wow factor. And he was completely correct in that Red Bull had this the slightly incorrect concept, as well as the problems they had, as you said, with the yeah they got it wrong didn't with they? the wall techn- with the wall in the wind tunnel. The, the basic explanation of that is obviously the the walls do interfere with the readings, and as the car got wider, it increased interference, so it, it caused some problems for them. And I'll just uh, pull out what he's uh, what he said this year in his uh, in his analysis. Now he's talked about the barge board detailing; they're uh, quite aggressive on side pods. So there's there's plenty of work in there, but uh, what Gary said was. Last year at the first pre-season test, I said I didn't see the wow factor with the Red Bull, and I have to say I also expected more this year. The car again has all the necessary bits and pieces, but there's no standout component optimization that I can see. Now, obviously, in fairness to Gary, that's just based on the pictures we've seen released in the video footage, etc., but that's a little bit of a worry from Red Bull. We're used to them being the the sort of standard bearers for Ferrari development, but they've, they've been that with less frequency over the past few years, even though... There have been plenty of times where you can make a good case that the car was the, the best one on the grid. So that also raises questions that regardless about potential engine limitations, are Red Bull as far ahead of the rest or with the leaders as they as they always were? You know, it doesn't necessarily need flashy magical bits on it, but there's that just general aero detail feel you get from looking at it with a level of the level of optimization and work that's gone into every little surface. Uh ignoring your terrible Gary Anderson impression. The one thing I would say about Red Bull launching early is does it does that maybe give it a bit more scope to introduce more between now and the start of the season? I think that was one of the things that yeah, Gary... We thought that last year, though, didn't yeah, we? But, and it never but, happened. No, but my point is being that if the build of the car is completed a week or so earlier than it would be at any other point, does that... I, I, I don't know what the timeline is really for these sort of things. I just wonder if that gives it a little bit more. We know that, obviously, Nui has been... You know, it has, has been very focused and excited by by the project and they've got him more involved over the last 12 months than, than they would have done previously. So it's, it's, it's difficult to say, especially when you've only got a handful of uh, a handful of studio shots to look at from the beginning and then the sort of rain, rain hit testing images that they released early on the shakedown day as well. Uh, it's, it's just, I, I take your point that it maybe looks a little bit basic, but for some reason, or maybe I'm giving them too much credit, I just find it really difficult to think that Red Bull aren't making the most of these regulations, given their history and who they've got in the tech team. Yeah, as well, we thought last year as well, though. I think one thing Red Bull has become slightly obsessed with is, is reducing drag as much as possible. and they've, they've, they've almost psyched themselves out over the engine situation, so they're always trying to find ways to run less, often less sort of top surface aero, aren't they, Ed? And I think I wonder if they've almost spent too long now with an engine deficit that their cars are constantly um, maybe look a little bit more basic on the outside because they are determined to try and make them slippery through the through the air down the straights. I don't know. No, it's, it's certainly possible. The uh, you have to set your stall out in the concept of the car where you want to where you want to decide acceptable drag is for for downforce, and your engine package is is part of that. And you've also got to take into account cooling demands etc if the Renault has greater cooling requirements than say the Mercedes then you have to have more air diverted into cooling or at least a capacity for that and of course any air you're diverting to cooling anything isn't creating performance through through downforce so it all feeds together in the in the in the equation the, the interesting thing for Red Bull picking up on what Scott said about the impact releasing the car earlier will have obviously the the first race date the 
the point where the cars get loaded up and flown out to to Melbourne. That that's a, a hard deadline that never changes. So it may be that Red Bull by going earlier means they'll have to take a bigger step with a package that gets introduced for Melbourne. But they've got a nice baseline package. Perhaps they're very confident on the aero side and they think actually we don't really need to push the boat out too much on this. The important thing with this car is understanding exactly how aggressive we can be, say with the engine, with the cooling how reliable we can be and, and perhaps they're just thinking this will get us the the functional good baseline that will allow us to be reliable and, and get the points but the trouble is all of these rationales only make sense in retrospect don't they you know if, if they go to australia bolt on a load more optimized parts and it does brilliantly well and it goes really well and they say well we did all the good running and testing this this is great if it goes badly then you start saying well maybe that early release was a problem <laughs> which is why it's sometimes difficult to understand exactly what the cause of shortcomings are also i think at the front of F1, uh, the F1 grid these days, it's not good enough anymore to get to Australia with just a solid car that will do a job and bag some points. If you, if you spend the early races doing that, again, the traditional bring a big update for the start of the European season, it's the midfield teams that do that now because they can't get the stuff ready for Australia. If the front-running teams try that, and they've just given up four races um, to, a, to a big rival. I think Red Bull have also got sunk into that mentality of um, of playing catch-up because I remember one of the, the targets that Christian Horner had was to turn up to the first test and you know knock out 100 laps a day. So, well, Mercedes have been doing comfortably beyond that for the last four years. So, it's kind of like... Red Bull never have. Yeah, exactly. So, that's why they finally yeah, set that yeah, target. I, no, I know, but my, I, I kind of look at that and just say, well, you know, your engine supply is in the fourth year of the, reg- of, of the, the engine regulations. Now, you know where you are with your car. You really need to be... Fifth year, sorry. You need to, uh, and you need to be in that position where you're targeting the top, surely. So that needs to be your target, rather than just go, oh well, you know, we've slightly bettered what we did did last season. You you, you need to be aiming for the best if that's your benchmark. I guess it's, it's what it allows you to do, doesn't it? You know, you you do need a reliable package, and to get the mileage, that's a prerequisite of understanding the car, etc. Mercedes has benefited from that. I think it's difficult though for Red Bull because we know the biggest single factor in deciding whether they can fight for the championship this year. Is the Renault engine. That's that's unavoidable. If they feel they've had to make greater compromises in where they've set the aero levels, the drag levels, the downforce levels for the car to suit the engine, are there already compromises engineered into the into the Red Bull that mean it looks like it does? And that's ultimately what's going to get the best out of the engine, but ultimately still not be good enough to take the fight to Mercedes. So they're in an invidious position, Red Bull, not to mention the fact that they could be looking for a new engine supplier. We don't really know where their future is. They could be the, the third third in line as, as a favoured Renault team as well so it's uh everyone's looking at it and thinking well Red Bull's natural place is fighting for the championship of course they can I've got no doubt if they had a Mercedes power supply they'd be a right pain for the works team and they'd be right up there but unfortunately Red Bull is in a really tricky position I, I don't think we can take it as a given that they can they can join that fight that it's almost more of a prob- more unlikely they won't join that fight because of Renault than than that they will I was just wondering if we're now been sort of sucked into this idea that, that that Red Bull is one of those those huge teams because of that run of title successes. When actually this era of F one, especially the with, with the engine formula, you actually need to, you can't be an independent team and and have that success. So was that four year spell of brilliance an anomaly because you had a couple of teams underperforming and just a nice rule set that suited them quite well? Naturally, in this we had quite... relatively equalised engine performance at the time. The V eights had been around a very long time by then. So I think it it did it did swing the the performance equation back towards uh, chassis and aero, and I think you're right, Scott, that these days you need much better sort of manufacturer affiliation you or need integration. A package, don't you? 
yeah, and that makes it a lot harder for even really good, effectively, customer teams to take that last final step or leap, if you want to call it that. The bottom line is Red Bull in the hybrid era has generally been a team that wins two or three races a year, with the exception of the, the terrible 2015 season, and that never really challenges for the championship, but tends to get to the end of the season on a nice stretch and everyone thinks, well, wouldn't it be great if they're right up there? Because we all love to see Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo right up there, able to fight for the title. But it's, it's, a, it's a big ask for a Red Bull, and I think there's still big questions about what its long-term future is, how it's going to approach Formula 1, and what it's going to be able to get out of it. So... I'd love to see the Red Bull really being competitive because I think that'd be a great story for the season. But and and the car, you know, the car's good. Gary's not not slated it or anything. He said, look, it's it's good. It's certainly got it's got more wow factor than last year's car, but it's still not kind of got that just grab you and shake you feel to it. But Gary's only looking at the cars as have been revealed. So Gary's going to be in the pit lane this time next week, isn't he? So we're if he's if he's changed his mind, we'll let him do a podcast about it. Exactly. Well, Gary's never never short of an opinion. The the wind tunnel in his head never stops whirring. Well, we've talked quite a bit about Red Bull, so let's move on to the next of the teams. We're kind of going in uh, in, in constructors' championship order from uh, from last year. So, Renault, Scott, from what you've seen of the car, how's Renault shaping up? It's an upwardly mobile team. How up do you think it's going to be based on what you've seen so far? Well, it's not like Williams or Sauber where there's been a clear shift in their philosophy for the for the car for this season, and that probably tells you more about how happy they were with where they ended 2017 they had a, a, a good series of upgrades through the year that improved the car and and they were maybe from a slightly higher level yeah exactly complexity wise exactly. they're still well short and, of the big and teams. that probably explains why during the sort of the all, all of the stuff that the, the the team releases when it reveals the car nick chester said that this was more of a development of the philosophy from last season so probably explains why when you look at it it looks good it looks tidy it's sort of similar to the Red Bull in the sense that there's nothing on there where you go, oh, what's that? Or what's that going to do? Um, one thing that Chester did flag up was a um, substantial difference in the suspension for this year. So maybe they're looking at areas where it's not an obvious, um, there's there's nothing tangible in terms of what you can see on the car, but what they've sort of learned as a race team in their sort of second year back as a, as a, as a works entry in Formula One, things that they've learned from an upgraded, uh, an upgraded wind tunnel, We've got better CFD resources as well, so maybe they're just sort of looking there and looking at areas of refinement. They've they've sort of targeted Aero as a, as a place where they can go. Okay, well we can probably make better gains this season, but really the other point that we've made about Red Bull sort of applies to Renault as well. They've also targeted getting more out of the engine and reliability as their biggest area of improvement for this year. Well, as we said in previous podcasts, the three Renault powered teams they're all going to shift kind of around the the overall performance shape almost in lockstep aren't they that's the big thing the first challenge for Renault whatever happens is to get as close as possible to to Red Bull and McLaren assuming those two are chassis wise a little bit a little bit further ahead of them so that's their uh, their biggest challenge whether they're fighting for third fourth eighth or well eighth is about the worst you could be fighting for if you're uh, trying to be the best of the engine group the championship that that depends on on the the engine side I think Renault are in a quite an exciting position at the moment. The team finished last year really well, I thought. If if we're being if we're looking at the numbers, in reality it finished with the fourth fastest car. Um just had the measure, I think, on pace of Force India by the end of the year. And I do think that the Renault resurgence and the seemingly inevitable McLaren resurgence is bad news for Force India. I do expect both of the, the Renault power I think all of the Renault powered teams to be ahead of Force India. 
this year, even if Force India have a good have a good winter. And I think the the works Renault team who we're talking about here, you know, fifth is kind of what you might call par for them this season. And they probably should have been fifth last season if they had reliability. Yes. They would have beaten Williams. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm expecting them to be fifth. And I, I think, though, they're in an interesting position in that if Red Bull or McLaren do drop the ball, I do think now that the works Renault team should be close enough to to punish them for those mistakes. And I think we've probably had a couple of years now where we've forced India being the fourth fastest team, but being quite far back, the front runners have had a slightly easier ride of it. And on an off weekend, okay, you're fifth and sixth, you know, if you're Red Bull and you're maybe not not really in the mix. I'm not sure that's going to be the case anymore. I think the the top end of the midfield is going to get a lot closer. And yeah, I believe that, like Scott said, there's no need for Renault to reinvent their car concept here because they clearly had it on a, in, going in a good direction by the end of last year. So just refine that, make the gains that you can't make in season. And then once again, like we said with Red Bull, a lot of it is going to come down to the engine. One of the things that I'm really excited by for this season is if Renault has made a step with its engine, the point that you made, Glenn, about where the, the works team ended up last year in terms of pace, they clearly had a good car and they're very good at developing it over the course of the season. That always bodes well because it means that everything you're seeing on the computers is actually tallying in real life. So that correlation is there. So if the if the Renault engine's good, there's no reason why the works team should be that far behind Red Bull in theory. And there's no immediate reason to think that McLaren's going to leapfrog both of them and be at, you know out in front and, and un, unreachable. So... What's fascinating there is that if the third engine supplier actually ups its game and gets much closer, all of a sudden that's going to bring three teams into the mix at the front. And not necessarily saying that Red Bull, Renault and McLaren are all going to be fighting for wins, but there's no reason why they can't be in podium contention. And places that are going to suit, they're still going to have an engine deficit. I don't think anyone's expecting, even Renault, that whatever step they've made over the winter is going to bring them onto Ferrari level. But if they're just close enough, so... They're in the mix in race trim, maybe not in Q3. Then all of a sudden, you're going to have three teams that claim to have three very good chassis uh, in the mix because the engine deficit is not as big as it was before. What I find most interesting about the Works Renault team is that of the three Renault-powered teams this season, they're probably the one flying most under the radar, which for a manufacturer team seems absolutely bonkers. But you've got Red Bull, who always make a lot of noise, always put pressure on the engine supply, always talk about how great their car is. McLaren, who are finally out of the Honda nightmare, but spent a lot of that time telling us their car was absolutely superb. So they've they've kind of set the bar very high for what we should see this year. Whereas actually, it's the factory team that've just been going about their business, being on a, on a steady rise from bringing that team from its sort of out of its lotus days where you know investment was cut and the team was kind of struggling to stay afloat by the end. This is actually the team that is going about it in the most low profile way heading into this year and I don't think that's a bad position for them to be in actually because if they do get outperformed by Red Bull and McLaren then nobody's really going to point any fingers because that's kind of what we're all expecting was if Renault had come in since they'd taken this team over and they maybe did a bit of this to start with had basically talked too good a game everyone would have their expectations much higher for this team and for this car and the, the final point that really excites me about Renault this year is the driver lineup. Hulkenberg and Science is a phenomenal pairing. And like Scott says, if the car's good enough, those guys are going to be capable of podiums. I think what's really, really exciting for, for them is it's kind of touching on what you said about them being in the perfect position because the other thing that they've got that the other two teams don't really have is sort of consistent momentum. The The Red Bull rise last year, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was obviously the peak when 
Verstappen won on merit in, Me- in Mexico, but then there was like there's like a little dip last couple of races where they weren't quite there. Um, so that it didn't necessarily stall, but it was sort of like a little bit of a. Well, that was when Renault turned the engines. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's say it's not that the, the the engines aren't totally there for the, for them to use absolutely at one hundred percent at the start of this season. What Renault has that the other two don't is that constant momentum over the last two years. So everyone's we're all assuming that McLaren's going to be mega, but what actual evidence do 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 we have to say for sure that, that they will? You're kind of taking them at your word and. the the thing that I've always sort of kept in mind when McLaren talk about how good their car is is that if 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 your car is running five ten mile an hour slower into the corners than everyone else is, then it's going to handle a little bit better, isn't it? It's going to feel amazing. So let's actually sort of see what they all come up with. I think the positive thing for Renault is everything is consistent in the story of Renault. Should we say we know they're gradually on the up. It's not probably not realistic to expect them to be right where they want to be at this stage they're still gearing up it takes a good few years for a team to to really climb from where they were because it was it was almost asset stripped from within in terms of personnel and and resource uh, in the under the previous ownership in the in the final years so they've had a lot of rebuilding to do but it's nice to see not a revolutionary change from the from the previous year's car you look at the current car you think yeah that's that's kind of an absolutely typical 2018 formula one car and i mean that in a positive sense there's some detail again side pod changes you know the bargeable detail it is there the suspension so they're they're clearly exploiting a concept they've been working on of course Renault was putting bits on the car last year really focused on looking at this year so it seems to me like everything they're doing reflects what they're saying I'm sure they're managing expectations publicly more and you know they'll want to be getting some good results and certainly some podiums and they'll be going to the season thinking fifth's the minimum in the constructors but it's positive to see everything being consistent with Renault, with the caveat that we really can't have that much confidence in the fact the engine side's going to be there because of, of what we've seen. So that, that's kind of where, where Renault is now. Let's have a look at Sauber. Glenn, a much more complex car, a giant leap for Sauber kind? Well, it can't be any worse than last year, can it? Um, Sauber have been through some pretty rough times and uh, it does look like with the Ferrari tie-up they've got now and some added investment and the Alfa Romeo partnership, Sauber can sort of brush away what you might call the blue era that we've just had and uh, let's let's start again and the car does look like a big step but mu- for, to me it's much like the Williams where it's a big step because there was a big step to be taken you know the car was lacking in so many areas that if you turn things around then it should look quite different what I've there were two things I found key in sort of what we've had from Sauber since the car was launched one is that they're already talking about a detailed development plan through the season we know that with the investment problems they've had over the last couple of years, developments were few and far between quite often with the last couple of cars, which is why not only were they stuck at the back, but they tended to fall away over the course of the season. So that's positive. And there's a lot of talk about Ferrari-influenced factors in their design. And I don't mean that they're going, oh, well, we've seen the Ferrari drawings, and we're going to do this with the side pods or the barge boards. It's more that now they've got the latest specification Ferrari engine and gearbox, that's influencing the way they have to design their suspension or their bodywork for cooling and their packaging. And But I think that's a good sign because what Ferrari are giving them and what they have to do to accommodate that should all be positive steps because I don't think Ferrari are going to be coming up with an engine or gearbox setup that's going to send the works team backwards. So that should be pointing Sauber at least in the right direction. Then, of course, it's up to the team to interpret that in the right way and to make use of the tools that Ferrari are giving them. But... It's a positive step, but like I say, it couldn't really be any worse than before. 
what really excites me about Salvo having a car that actually looks like it's going to be what it should be in that sort of lower midfield fight at the very least, so not detached at the back of the grid, is Charles Leclerc having a car that's not just going to be him racing his teammate because he's such an exciting talent and he's a guy that him getting into F1 is very, very good for, for Grand Prix racing as a whole. But unfortunately, if he ends up at the back of the grid and he's only fighting Marcus Ericsson, fighting Marcus Ericsson then you're not really going to get um, you're not going to get much satisfaction. You're not really going to get the full effect of how good he is as a driver. I'm quite looking forward to seeing him in wheel-to-wheel combat because we've known him as the 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 F2 dominator for the for the last year or so. So actually seeing him cut and thrust thrown into the F1 fight is going to be going to be fascinating. If Sal was in that midfield battle, yeah, you hope that they're at least close enough to it that even if they're at the back, he can he can embarrass some people or spring some surprises. You think back to when. Fernando Alonso was in a Minardi. If he put in a spectacular qualifying lap, he was suddenly 16th, 17th on the grid, which in a Minardi was a real like wow performance. And he was able to lay down an early marker for just how good he was, even when he was driving the worst car in F1. And that's the bare minimum, I think, that Leclerc will be hoping for. Um, but really for Sauber, they've got some teams to aim at, haven't they? I think teams like Torosso and Haas are potentially vulnerable here. Well, compare uh, the complexity of the Haas that we've seen Absolutely. the rendings of so this is a different level if you're harsh you're a bit worried I think yeah potentially and the other key factor I think with the Sauber is that they've been very honest in that they've they've extended their wheelbase by pushing the front wheels forward effectively to create more room in and around the front of the side pods because that's the area in under the 2017 to now uh, aerodynamic rules where you can really exploit some freedom and there can be a lot of complexity in the barge board and side pod area and Sauber are going after that. And that would tally with following a kind of Ferrari lead because we know that Ferrari probably had one of the most complex setups from launch in 2017 in that area. I know that caught everybody's eye at the time. So again, it suggests that Sauber are focusing on the right areas and really that's that's all they can do at the moment. They've got a big job on their hands, but it's certainly from launch spec, from what we can see, it looks like the right step. We can't forget that you know, they had an ageing Ferrari engine by the end of last year. We saw the damage that did to Toro Rosso the previous season. And it shows you just how much ground the engine manufacturers are making during a season uh, in F1 these days. And Sauber paid a huge price for that. So for them, the engine steps can be even bigger because they're not going from a 2017 engine to a 2018 engine. They're basically making a two-year leap. So that, that's going to be huge as well. And of course, the fact that Sauber have got greater complexity doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work. No. We know we're not saying that, but basically it shows that the team is is now able to have more realistic ambitions than just surviving. That's a reason that, to get excited, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. That's why this car embodies something a bit more interesting about Sauber. One of the things that I quite liked as well about their launch is that they, they were quite detailed with what they've revealed. So there's a big selection of images, but the images are really high quality as well. And one of the things that I've noticed from all of the other teams is they're really dark. They've got a dark background, there's a lot of shadows around the front wing end plates and stuff like that, or there's a limited selection of images. Red Bull's obviously done the camouflage livery, and I'm sure like that's, I think, disruptive or something is what they the, the word that they were trying to, to use about it because it looks so different. But I'm sure there's also an element of disguising what they've done in there as well. I quite like, I don't know whether it was a bit of naivety from Salva's point of view to put all of their details massively on show but I think it's also the fact that F1 testing starts next week I can't imagine anyone's going to look at that Salva and go oh we need to have that little flap on the halo on our car let's get it built and made and shipped out to Barcelona for Monday morning well I also think when you're at the back of the grid you're probably the team everybody's looking at the least so Salva can do what they like and 
most people are probably thinking, though, well, we're not going to be copying ideas from Sauber this year, are we? There's also the whole charade of the secrecy. You know, all the teams get a feel for what each other are doing the second the car appears in public. You know, By midday me- on Monday of the first test, exactly. they'll all know what all the key bits are on the other cars that they want to see. Yeah, they'll have dozens of high-res photos, won't they, that have been taken and fed back to them, that sort of thing. And yeah, they've know, all got spy photographers and they've, exactly, all, they've yeah. all got their own eyes as well. They can go and have a look. And also, you know, I'll, I know of people, technical side of teams, who'll have a photo of something, send it to their opposite number. Oh, and they do, they send that. it that's to each other, don't they? They, they yeah. sort of say, yeah, we've noticed. And it happens so quickly, so you almost don't know what they're hiding sometimes, unless well, there's the some real Red magic Bull trick. thing, isn't it? Where for years during the blown diffuser era and that sort of thing, they'd be hiding, all the mechanics would go and hide a part of the car on the grid. And Adrian knew he's admitted now, quite often they were, they were it was it was a diversionary tactic. There's something else on the car they don't want anyone to look at. But if you go and hide around the rear wing, that's the bit everyone's trying to get a look at and something else can be out there in plain sight and nobody's looking at it. Exactly. It's, it's very rare that you get some completely magical bit. And also, you know, the complexity of these cars, everything's connected. The whole aero map of the cars all... You can't just copy yeah. a Mercedes front wing and it'll work with your car, can you? Exactly, exactly. These cars aren't sort of Frankenstein's monsters. They're not composites of each other. Ideas, yeah, can be applied. If you can understand why people are doing things, then you're getting somewhere. I would urge everyone to uh, subscribe to Autosport Plus and read Gary Anderson's analysis of uh, this car. Why Sauber Alpha is already on another level is his uh, is his article about that. And of course, on the podcast, we will have Gary Anderson looking at all these cars in depth. We want to give him the chance to have a proper look at them in reality on the ground in Barcelona before he uh, issues his final verdict. But his uh, his pieces are always really interesting to read. And the thing that shines through about Sauber is Gary and the wind tunnel in his head. And I should say the CFD, he's a very modern kind of technical analyst. He does have uh, mental CFD capabilities as well. Everything he sees on the Sauber, he can explain kind of, right, they've done that, they've changed it to that, that's clearly basically to do that, that's to do that, that's to do that. So it's coherent. It doesn't seem like a, a mismatch of things. It's like, right, I can see why they've done that, see why they've done that, see why they've done that, which I think is, is always important because it shows there's uh, – some semblance of good technical leadership there rather than just everyone just throwing ideas at the car. And this is a difference between when we were talking about Red Bull and trying to have a solid car at the start of the year and Sauber. Now, all those things you just listed from Gary there, those are important when you're Sauber. You need you need a decent baseline to start the year and you need to just sort of get rolling in Australia and, and basically build have something to build on. Um, that's not acceptable for the top teams, but for the guys at the back, you know, there will be there could be a couple of teams who do trip up at the start. And if Sauber, like we've seen from Haas in the past, if you can bag some results early on, you can sort of reap the benefits of that through the season, whether that is being able to switch off your development earlier to focus on the following year's car. You know, there's, there are always points that are up for grabs for the smaller teams early in the season. And that's where being solid is more important for them than it is acceptable for the top teams, I would say. Especially when you're a small team where you've got this big change and if you can get that work in early, then okay, if you trip up over the course of the season because you've got so much of a different philosophy on your car, you're trying updates that maybe don't work, that sort of thing, it's not quite as painful. You've got those results in the bank early on that can be so crucial from the Constructors' Championship point of view and the prize money that comes with that um, come the end of the season. One of the interesting things with the Sauber as well is uh, if you look at the Halo on the car, there's a good detail shot they put out of that. With the, they, they take advantage of the fact that teams are allowed to put fairings on it. They've kind of got a, a separated fairing. It's like a fairing with a, a slot gap in it almost that's uh, that's there just to kind of stabilise the turbulence and channel the airflow better to the airbox intake. But talking about the halos in general, we've seen five cars now. It's still the thing that we're getting loads of response on social media about, about the halo, this, that, the other. It's still the thing people are getting used to. 
Does anyone have any anyone's feelings on the Halos changed? I've been trying to be positive about it. Uh, when I've when I've seen it on a moving car, I've never thought it looks as bad as it does in static images. And I've been I've, when we did a, a live podcast at Autosport International this year with uh, Gary Anderson and Kareem Chandok, Ed. Again, I tried to be positive when we got asked about it in the crowd. The first question of the day. It was, yeah. That show, it is very important to the fans because um, yeah, they care about what the cars look like and frankly, most of them are offended by what they look like with a halo on them. I've been trying to give it time and I think a lot of the drivers are saying they're going to give it time because, you know, they've got to they've got to tow the party line. Um, but then IndyCar started testing its windscreen and I've been doing quite a lot of work on that, working with the video footage that's been put out and, and the images. And we've been publishing features, got in Allsport Plus about it. And after a few days of spending a lot of time looking at that, when I went back to looking at an F1 car with a halo on it, it my eyes were hurting. And I do think it's such a shame that we've sort of ended up with whatever's most ready for 2018 rather than perhaps a more elegant solution. But we are stuck with it. And we're going to have to get used to it. And I'm still not convinced that as all the people that are telling us they're going to switch off and not watch F1 this year because of the halo, are you really not going to watch the start of the Australian Grand Prix because you think the cars are ugly? Well, I would chip in with that. Saying, uh, having seen the response that we've had to our in-depth technical articles on Autosport Plus about what the new cars look like and what's on them, I haven't really seen too much of a dip that suggests that they're not looking at the cars because they've got this massive halo on top. So I think that they're still going to care. I think the other thing for me as well is that it could be a temporary thing. It could only be here for one season or two and then they'll find something else. I think the point that you make about it looks better when the cars are on track and it's not a close-up, that that's important for me. The, the shot, you just don't notice it as much if you're no. trackside or if it's on a, on a moving image. It, I, I find for me the most offensive image of the Halo is the sort of head-on one from sort of halfway down the nose cone. And you're sort of looking at it, it looks huge and bulky and horrible. And that's when it looks like a giant flip-flop. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But, um, you know, I, I, I heard uh, someone, one of our Autosport colleagues earlier today, say that the, the, the IndyCar windshield, do you, when you actually look at it from the side, stationary in the pits, it's quite big. It doesn't look very nice from the side. On track and from the front, opposite of the halo, it looks really good. So I think it's going to, it's like anything, it's going to depend on perspective. And I think fundamentally, by the time we get, the, the, the all the cars on track in testing in Melbourne, I think you're going to forget about it pretty quickly and it's just going to become normal part of F1. If yeah. you get good racing, people won't care about it. You know, If we've got multiple teams fighting for victories, multiple teams capable of podiums, it'll be forgotten and the stories about F1 2018 will be positive. Much like just having Ferrari last year take the championship fight to Mercedes was great news for F1. People only pick these other things out and attack F1 for those things. If F1's fundamentals, which is the on-track products and the competitive uh, order amongst the teams and how competitive it is between them all, it's only when that's going wrong that you start looking for the other faults with F1. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, we're well, both right in that I think people will notice it less once the season starts and things start happening and doubly so if there's there's lots going on. My position on the Halo is still that it's a rather it's a rather inelegant solution. I think F1 backs itself into a corner. I think it's an annoying halfway house. If you're going to decide you want to enclose the cockpit, enclose the cockpit. Don't do this stupid halfway house that tries to preserve an open cockpit but kind of is and kind of isn't. It's like it's just a it's a little bit of a mess. But I do also accept it's there. It isn't the end of civilization. For me, I don't really understand why the prospect of a driver being 
hit in the face with a wheel is such an integral part to, to enjoyment. I know that's a slightly fatuous way of interpreting that that argument, but fundamentally it doesn't change how difficult the cars are to drive, the skill of the drivers, the nature of the racing, etc. But what it is, is to me it's a physical manifestation of a rather unsatisfactory solution and some slightly muddy thinking. But as I've said before, someone gets hit in the face with a wheel at 150 miles an hour in Melbourne, we're all going to think it's quite good that was there. That's exactly what I was going to come to. If, if one in one of the early races, the halo protects a driver or even saves his life, the discussion's over. Well, that's as good a place to finish as any. So thanks very much for joining us. And thanks to Scott Mitchell and Glenn Freeman for their input. If you'd like to read a little bit more about the, the new cars, head to autosport.com where we've got ongoing live news about the goings-on, both for these new newly launched cars and also the the other teams that are launching and various stories about Red Bulls crashing and all sorts of goings on. We've also got the plus subscriber area in which we've got Gary Anderson's in-depth analysis of each of the cars, which I'd urge everyone to go and take a look at. Really, really good insight into what all the teams are doing. And we've only touched the the surface of the, the kind of insight Gary's offering in what we've talked about. And also check out Autosport magazine, which has technical analysis of all the cars and a cover feature on the new Red Bull. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo. Written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part? It's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, you can get boosted deposits by 57% up to $1,000 on the Gambit DC app and up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost at Gambit DC retail locations. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please bet responsibly. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.